0: Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am very excited today to talk to my special guest, Cliff Sloan. Cliff teaches con law, criminal justice, and the death penalty at Georgetown Law School. He's a Harvard grad, uh, Harvard grad both undergraduate and law school. He clerked for Jay Skelly Wright. And for those of you too young to know who Jay Skelly Wright was, he was probably the most important feeder judge to the Supreme Court that there has maybe ever been, which, and which may also explain why Cliff also clerked for Justice Stevens, who is one of my favorite justices. Uh, he's written a fantastic new book called The Court at War. It's about the Supreme Court during World War II. I reviewed the book for Dorf on Law. I loved every word from the first to the last, and I wanted to have Cliff on, and that's why he's here. Cliff, thanks so much for being here.
1: Well, thank you, Eric. Thank you for those very uh, kind words uh, about the book and, and your review, and it's really just a thrill and a delight for me um, to be on with you because I listen to the podcast all the time and, well, and I love it. I always find it very, very interesting. So it's it's really a joy for me to be on it with you.
0: Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Uh, before we get into the book, a couple of preliminary questions, then we'll discuss the heart of the book. So First, you clerked for Justice Stevens. Um I love Justice Stevens. He wasn't perfect on my but I he's one of my favorite justices and he came to Georgia State twice because we used to have a faculty member who clerked for him. And this the first time he came, I said to him, You wrote my favorite opinion of any decision ever in the history of time. Unfortunately it was a dissenting opinion, but it was in a case called Pennhurst and I thought it was brilliant. And I didn't think he'd really care. But he gave me such a warm smile when I told him that. And he, he seemed, I don't know, he seemed happy. He may not have been. What was it like clerking for Justice Stevens?
1: Oh, it was, it was fantastic um, clerking for him. And, you know, frankly, staying in close touch with him until he, uh, right up until he died in 2019 at the age of 99. He was a lifelong influence for me. Um, but clerking for him was just fantastic because he was just a, both a terrific person and an amazing justice in terms of the way he approached cases. Um, You know, personally, he was both, you know, very warm and very down to earth. And I'll tell you one story that he used to love to tell, which I think (laughs) tells you a lot about him, which is when he was uh, appointed to the... Supreme Court by President Gerald Ford in 1975, and he was moving to Washington from Chicago, where he'd been on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. And so he's doing all the things that you do when you first move to a new place, opening bank accounts and that kind of thing. And so he's at the bank and he fills out the application and it says occupation. And so he writes justice. And so the bank clerk looks at it and shrugs his shoulders and said, okay, last week I had a guy who said peace. (laughs) But, you know, he used to love to tell that story because he just had that kind of self-deprecating, you know, uh, part of him. And he only had two clerks deliberately at a time when they were authorized to take four. And all of the others took four except Rehnquist took three because he liked having four for uh, tennis doubles matches. But but he had the two. But Stevens had the two of us in one room, and he had this big, black, uh, sagging leather chair. And he used to pad into the clerk's office several times a day and just kind of plop down on the chair and talk about anything. Talk about the cases, and he'd be really immersed in the cases. Um, But also just, you know, talking about his... Tennis game that morning, or talking about what was happening in the sports world, or anything else, and he was just a, a wonderful person. Um, but as a justice, he was just a, 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 a terrific justice, in my opinion, one of the all-time greats. You know, if there's a Hall of Fame of justices, he has a very special place there. And in, in to my mind, he's really the rule of law justice. And you know, we could talk for a long time about what that means. But just kind of across the board, I think he was the rule of law justice, and he felt that. Nobody was above the rule of law and, you know, sometimes infuriating people on the left, sometimes on the right. In the Paula Jones case against Clinton, he wrote the opinion that it should go forward because he thought President Clinton was not above the law. In Bush v. Gore, uh, in his dissent, he memorably, memorably said that the biggest loser in the case was the public confidence in the Supreme Court, angering many on the right. And he also thought nobody was below the law. So the most reviled people, Guantanamo detainees, criminal defendants, capital defendants, all of them, he felt very, very strongly about um, their uh, need to have their rights vindicated. And actually, you talk about the Penhurst case, and without getting into you know, into the weeds on it. I mean, that's a case where the court was constructing an immunity that was preventing the rule of law from operating. And so that would be one of the reasons he felt so strongly about it. Um, So he just, uh, for me, he was just a, uh, you know, a terrific person, a terrific role model, and a a terrific justice. And by the way, you mentioned his appearance at Georgia State, and I have to tell you, in both my criminal procedure class and my con law class, I play a clip of a video of him from that appearance. Really? Because, and yeah. I play a clip of a video um, of Scalia because I think that uh, in one of his appearances, he talked about the way he approaches cases and originalism yeah. and his view of originalism. Yeah. And so it's a great, sort of, um, you know, concise summary of his view. And I use it to contrast Scalia's, but I'm very familiar with that Georgia State appearance.
0: Well, I I mentioned uh, my last podcast was with Nick Stephanopoulos of Harvard, and we were talking about voting rights, of course, and elections. And I mentioned that um, after Posner went on Mike Sachs' HuffPost Live and revealed that Posner thought he made a mistake uh, in the the, uh, voter ID case that came out of Indiana, uh, long after it was decided, Stevens, just a few a few weeks later, I think, said he, he wrote the majority opinion in the Supreme Court, said he made a mistake too. So when you opposed her and Stevens, both saying they were wrong on a very public <laughs> matter is a kind of a big deal. Now, I, my impression of Stevens was just that he was just someone who tried to get it right, who, who really, um, um, tried to do the right thing. And that's pretty much all we can ask, I think, at this point, you know, from.
1: No, any- absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, when he was nominated to the uh, Supreme Court, and of course, you know, the the combination of historical circumstances. Um President Ford and Attorney General Ed Levy were trying to restore the luster of the Justice Department at the time, and so they wanted somebody who was just perceived as a uh, very independent and an outstanding judge and the phrase that was used about Stevens at the time was that he was a judge's judge and that's what it meant not that it was abstract or esoteric but just exactly what you're saying Eric that he approached every case he prided himself on doing that and he would really dig into the into in, in into the facts and into the legal issues, he used to always be very skeptical of what he called the glittering generalities yes. that people mm. sort of throw around these broad, sweeping terms as though they resolve the cases. And um, and it's 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 a part of judicial humility in a way to recognize that. No, you just you, you don't just adopt these glittering generalities. You have to really, um,
0: you know, deal with the with the case as it comes to you. It's amazing you say that. I was was spending too much time on this, but we're going to keep going. Um, so it's amazing you say that because the the smart one of the smartest lawyers I ever met was a partner I worked for briefly at Gibson Dunn and Crutcher when I was there in D.C. And glittering generalities. He he. We had some we had some cases that we really were going to lose, and we had almost no chance of winning. But I would come to him with the holding of a case and he would say, I don't care about the holding yet. Yeah, give me the context. Give me the facts. Give me what it is on the ground. Then give me the holding and then I'll tell you if this case helps or hurts us. But you can't just give me the, the, the heading yet, yeah, you know? And he, and he really meant that in a very deep way. And I think Stevens really always understood that, that it's, you can't just transplant those, you know, um, headings from from West or whatever, and think you have a legal rule. It depends what the case was about. Anyway, I I thought Stevens really understood that and was really fact-specific in his – Souter and Stevens are my two favorite justices of my lifetime, and I think they both – Well, and
1: and I'm sure you probably know this. They became very, very close. I'm not surprised. Very close personal friends. Um, You know, Souter, who is a bachelor. Would have dinner with Stevens and his wife regularly. Right. And uh, they were, they were, they were very, very close. I could
0: see that. Okay. Enough about that. Let's talk about this fantastic book. So, um, I've taught con law for 33 years and practiced it before that. So, probably a 40 year journey in this, in this world of con law for me. And I never really thought of the World War II period as that interesting. Uh, Of course, everyone knows about Korematsu and how terrible that was and, and a couple other cases. But, I never thought of it as, a, as you know, a, a time period that you'd want to take out and study the court during that time period. And boy, was I wrong because your book has so many interesting things on it. So let me ask you first, why did you pick that time period to write about?
1: Yeah, so I, I'll tell you how I got into it. So, um you know, I was working as Special Envoy for Guantanamo closure in the Obama administration in 2013 and 2014. And in connection with that, I was reading the court's military detention cases, including the infamous Korematsu case. Yeah. And I read a case a year before Korematsu, which was the first of the you know, shameful anti-Japanese cases, Hirabayashi, um, upholding a, a, a curfew targeted at Japanese-American citizens. And I noticed that exactly one week before uh, Hirabayashi, exactly seven days before, the court had issued West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett, the famous uh, great opinion by Justice Robert Jackson striking down at the height of World War II a mandatory flag salute in West Virginia public schools and ruling for these Jehovah's Witnesses um, school children who objected to uh, saluting the flag. And it really struck me that within one week, you had one of the greatest civil liberties decisions in the history of the Supreme Court and one of the worst civil liberties decisions in the history of the Supreme Court. And so I became interested in that and wanted to (laughs) read about it. And to your point, Eric, I discovered there's very little written about the Supreme Court in World War II as a subject. There's a ton written on FDR's battles with the courts in the 1930s and the failed— court packing plan and the switch in time that saved nine. And then there's a lot written on the war in court beginning in the 1950s. But there's very, very little that's written about the court and World War II. So I started looking into it and reading up on it. And it turns out um, it's an amazing story. And, uh, and the war really dominated everything for the justices. It dominated their personal lives and it dominated all of their cases, including the cases that didn't directly relate to the uh, to the war itself. Um, and actually, I could tell you two quick anecdotes that I think really sort of uh, symbolize that point. And the first one, the day after Pearl Harbor Day on December 8th, 1941. And this was told to me by a gentleman who just turned 100 years old. Wow. And at the time, he was an 18-year-old uh, aide in the Supreme Court library. And he was doing what an aide did that Monday morning, December 8th. He, he was doing what a library aide does, delivering books, picking up books. And all of a sudden, he noticed all these U.S. Army soldiers bursting into the Supreme Court um, with their weapons drawn and wow. taking up positions at the windows and on the roof. And the reason was because that day at noon, FDR was going to be at the Capitol across the street delivering his famous Day of Infamy speech. And this was part of the expanded um, security perimeter. This was you know, the day after this devastating surprise attack. And so what you have is, quite literally, the war invading the quiet precincts of the Supreme Court. And the second one was on December 26, 1941. And Winston Churchill addresses a joint session of Congress. And Churchill had come to DC earlier that week in a dramatic surprise visit. And so he delivers this speech to this joint session of Congress and all the justices are in the front row. And it's this rousing, eloquent, dramatic Churchillian speech. And at the end he pauses and looks out at the crowd and he lifts up his fingers in his famous V for victory sign. And in the front row, very prominently, the Chief Justice, Harlan Fisk Stone, lifts his fingers in response in a V for victory. And everybody sees it and it's reported in
0: newspapers around the country.
1: And again, the symbolism, the meaning of it was clear. The court
0: was in the fight. Wow, that 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 is interesting. Um what one of the things that hit me right away from your book was you detail how several of the justices, I think, went to the White House and literally talked to the president about I think it's Douglas, right? About potential legislation in Congress and whether it would get through Congress, whether it would get through the court, but they're literally physically in the White House. Is that right?
1: Uh, yeah. Well, especially James Burns, who, right. you know, you have some very well-known justices from that period and some who are not as well-known. And Jimmy Burns had been a Senator from South Carolina. FDR appointed him in the summer of 1941. He actually left the court in the fall of 1942 because FDR said, um, Come to the White House full time. You'll be the assistant president overseeing <laughs> the domestic economy. But while he was still on the court, while he was a sitting justice, um, FDR made clear to everybody in government, cabinet officials, that any war-related legislation had to go through Jimmy Burns. And while he Burns was a Jim- wait, 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 while he was a justice? While he was a sitting justice and Burns was working out of the White House on legislation, and he was a lead intermediary between the administration and Congress on this important war-related legislation, so, which, of course, could come before the court for interpretation. So, and, so uh, let's back know, up. And, hold, on, hold on.
0: Pause. Let's start let's, to interrupt. Let's back up for one second here. That Would that be the equivalent of, let's say, um, the president and Justice um, Kavanaugh, Talking about potential student loan legislation that may or may not get through, and, and 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 whether it was constitutional, and that's kind of the same thing, right? I mean,
1: yeah, yeah, and he, even more so working with the Hill on developing it on behalf of the administration. It's not just kind of giving um, you know views on uh, the legality; it's actually working on the substance of the legislation. And um, you know, and some of this was reported at the time, and it didn't get a lot of attention. You know, I found a newspaper article that referred to Burns as an intermediary with Congress on behalf of the administration. and almost just reported it without comment.
0: That's there crazy. There are other articles. <laughs> an an <laughs> there are intermediary, other articles. a Supreme, Wait 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 a minute, a Supreme Court justice was an intermediary between between the Congress and the administration. Right. Right. Wow. And, you
1: know, Burns, I I mentioned that he had been a senator from South uh, Carolina. He was uh, known as a kind of parliamentary wizard in the Senate. He knew how to get things done. And so, you know, FDR wanted to um, kind of um, tap into that. And certainly, you know, by today's standards, it's uh, remarkable. But, you know, um, one thing, stepping back for a second, everybody knows about fdr's failed court packing plan in 1937 but one of the well, things hold on, that's just, not just,
0: so, just so you know i don't believe it failed but go ahead
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay well the legislation yes. failed, and of course yes, yes and the court yes. did you know there's the change in response to it um yes. yeah a- a- absolutely but in any case the unsuccessful legislative package yes. about uh, expanding the court and um but what Is not as well known or appreciated is that by the summer of 1941, FDR had appointed seven of the nine justices and he had elevated an eighth to be Chief Justice. Eight of the nine justices owed their position to FDR. And it wasn't just, uh, it was by far the biggest impact on the court of any president since George Washington. And it wasn't just the number of justices. Um, many of them were extremely close to him. And we were just talking about Burns, but we could go through almost each of the justices. And um, and there were many that he gave kind of um, various assignments and missions. Um, you know, some of them informal. One of them formal. He appointed um, Justice Owen Roberts to head. a a commission investigating what happened at Pearl Harbor with all these top military people. But he also did things like um, he sent uh, uh, Hugo Black to Alabama to report on the state of war readiness in the industries there um, to him. And And Frank Murphy, another of the lesser known justices who had been mayor of Detroit and governor of Michigan and US Attorney General, he had Frank Murphy go to Detroit um, again, to investigate the state of war readiness. And, of course, Detroit was so important because it was manufacturing jeeps and other equipment. And and then Murphy did a national radio address reporting on his findings and <laughs> saying, we have to do a lot better on preparedness. And uh, so, I mean, it's just, um, it's, it's sort of remarkable, the extent of it. And and also during 1941, so before we entered the war in Pearl Harbor in December of 41. At a time when there was still a lot of isolationist sentiment in the country and FDR was pushing hard for preparedness, a lot of the justices were out giving speeches um, very strongly supporting FDR's policy on the most contested policy issue at the time. And some of these appearances were coordinated with the White House. Again, you know, Frank Murphy, he was the only Catholic on the court at the time. And so, um, and, and there was some concern in the Catholic community about the Soviet Union, which had become an ally um, of Britain because Germany had invaded it. And there was some concern in the Catholic community because the Soviet Union was so anti-religious and so hard on the, on the church. And so um, coordinated with the Roosevelt administration, Murphy goes to talk to the Knights of Columbus and he basically gives them the FDR message that um, we have to welcome the Soviet Union. And that's far more important than um, it, it, because of the horrors of Nazi Germany. And that is our priority right now. And FDR sends a message to Murphy that he was tickled to death by his appearance, and it had been coordinated wow. with it. So it's just to a remarkable degree the justices were coordinating on non-judicial policy matters.
0: So, so I don't know if you know this or not, but since since 2012, well, really for most of my career, my. Um my unique contribution to the literature is that the Supreme Court is not a court, and it's just that are not real judges. And I'm aware be, of that. And <laughs> you've given me a lot more evidence of this. One last question about this before we move on. Do, do you have any sense, because I don't, do you have any sense of th- this close connection between the president and some members of the court, many members of the court? Was that a new thing or had that been going on in America really since the beginning? And it's only post kind of war, during the war in court and after that, that we got this rigid separation of the justices from the administration.
1: You know, I, I, I my sense is that um, the pervasiveness of it was unique yeah, um, and yeah. the the extent of it and the number of justices. There are occasional one off instances that you can find, uh, you know, in the in the past. But I do think um, both the um, <laughs> both both the range of it in terms of the number of justices and the and the depth of it, um, I think were, were unique. Okay, interesting. And you know, one of the things that it's related to is that FDR himself, after these battles with the court, he saw them as. These were his people, and you know, um, it, th- th- this was a part of his extended official family, and he had very, very close relationships um, with almost all of them, and so he definitely did not see them or treat them as a kind of distinct, you know, an independent branch.
0: Well, that's because, well, I won't even say it. Okay, so let's move on. <laughs> that, that's, great. that's great stuff, though. Uh, so when I teach the steel seizure case, which is after the time period you're writing about, but when I when, when the students read Justice Black's ultra-formalist opinion, saying that that Truman could not seize the steel mills because – only Congress can make a law and this was making a law and all of that's nonsense. Um And then they read Frankfurter's opinion, um, which is uber-functionalist, and they go at each other on that level. And I, I say to the students in, in in the Intro to Con Law 1 class, we we can't talk about m- m- much of this because this is mostly Con Law 2 or First Amendment stuff. But Frankfurter and Black had this – battle going on for decades over formalism versus functionalism and all of that and to the best of my knowledge they didn't like each other very much and that was a problem too so you write a lot about the relationships between and among the justices and I'm uh, during that time period and I'm very curious about the Douglas black relationship so what can you say about that well
1: so you know one of the things that's very interesting about this period is that again um, you know this is this is the roosevelt court um, he's appointed, uh, you know, seven of the nine elevated and eighth to be chief justice. And the expectation and the predictions were that they were going to march in lockstep. Um, he's got control of the court and it's they're just going to be all sort of uniform. And very quickly, as you point out there, they um, sort of split into two rival blocks, um, one-headed by Black and one headed by Frank uh, by Frankfurter. And you know, part of it was substantive. Um, the, you're talking about Black's formalism, but also his sort of what, what he viewed as his plain language reading of the Constitution right. often led to sort of broad interpretations of constitutional rights. And for Frankfurter um, and those in his block, sort of scarred by the pre-1937 experience of the court striking down lots of legislation. They wanted kind of hands off, uh, uh, or more, more of a hands off approach um, by the judiciary across the board. So some of it was substantive, but a lot of it also was personal. Because, um, it, first of all, almost all of them had lived these very large public lives, very different from the Supreme Court today. Um, you had former senators, a former governor, former US attorneys general, a former chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission, a former leading public intellectual. Um, and every one of them felt that he could and should be leading the, <laughs> the court. None more so than Felix Frankfurter. right? Because he had devoted his life to studying the Supreme Court, writing about it. He was close to these icons like Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandeis. And he was convinced that it was his fate and destiny to lead the court, and the other justices would just fall in line behind him. And the other justices didn't quite see it that way. <laughs>
0: what a surprise. And- <laughs> <Shock>. <laughs> and so
1: that made Frankfurter very, very bitter. And he kept a diary during part of uh, this time on the court, and he records every grievance and insult. And he actually even takes to calling, you know, black and douglas and murphy and rutledge the axis now this is in the middle of world war ii when we're fighting wow. the axis nations right axis you know it's evil. as though after 9 11 um, one justice started it, it would be as though after 9 11 one justice started calling other justices al-qaeda right you know and it, it and it wasn't it wasn't a one-way street i mean there are notes um uh, from uh, Douglas to Murphy in this period, where he refers to uh, Frankfurter as Der Fuhrer and the little bastard. So there's just tremendous um, enmity uh, at at a very personal level between the justices
0: at this time. So what was so interesting about both the the book and what you just said about all that is people, especially lawyers and law professors, have a tendency... To see the Supreme Court justices as somehow not real people. But the reality is they go to the bathroom. They, they have, they have wives and husbands or lovers. They, they do everything we do. And I met, I me- I mentioned that because, um, just a slight digression. When the Affordable Care Act case came out, um, I made the point in the media and then Dahlia Lithwick did a Slate podcast with me on it, that whatever made Roberts change his mind, we know he changed his mind. He was going to strike the law down. Then he decided not to strike the law down. Whatever that was, and I'm sure it was many different things, but a big part of it was it was the Kennedy court. It had been the Kennedy court from the second Justice Roberts took, took over as chief justice. And I know, and after that case, it was no longer the Kennedy court. And I'm convinced that's a piece of the puzzle. That's a part of the puzzle because they're human beings. And if your whole life is you want to be chief justice of the Supreme Court, which I think Roberts did, his entire life, and you get there and Kennedy has all the power, four to his left, four to his right, you'd be pissed. So I, anyway, my point about that is the the Black Douglas thing, did it make its way into doctrine? In other words, did there do you think they each sometimes took positions maybe a little more rigid – either in Black's formalism or Frankfurter's functionalism, just because they want to distance themselves as much as possible from the other one?
1: Well, you know, uh, I'll say two things about that. One, certainly in in some of the cases, in terms of kind of what is driving them, there absolutely um, is a... a, um, a kind of personal issues um, at play. I mean, there's one um, there's one case where Frankfurter is in dissent and Frank Murphy is writing the opinion. And Frankfurter is convinced that black behind the scenes is pulling the strings. (laughs) Right. And um, and it it, it really sort of fuels a lot of kind of anger and resentment on his part. And then he's kind of determined to do whatever he can on it. Now, he also, you know, there was a genuine disagreement on the the merits. But you see these kind of personal um, issues, uh, you know, kind of come into play a lot. So um, so at, at, at one level, that's absolutely true. On the other hand, it's also true that um, if and and you know, this is this is kind of the way it famously works on the court. Th- there are some cases where, despite their you know kind of enmity on a lot of issues, if Frankfurter thought that black could be an ally on something that he thought was important, he would go to black on it, you know, and so there are you know there are some instances of that, and where Frankfurter's trying to rally the court um, in uh, you know on on different cases and different issues and and again, when he thinks black can be helpful, you know for example, in corralling Douglas, he doesn't hesitate right. um, to try to <laughs> reach out as well. you know the famous line yes. about Justice Brennan and counting to five yes
0: of course. Yes. Yes. the yes. most important role of the and, court, counting the five. Yes. Yes. Believe me, I'm so. very familiar. I've only cited that 37 times. And, um, <laughs> yeah, <so. laughs> um, but you know, one of the great things about your book. And, and so I, you're about the fifth person I've had on my podcast who's written a book and we're talking about it. And I've liked, I've loved all those books, well, but there's one part of your book that is, that runs through it that is so special that I've not seen as much in other Books about the Supreme Court. You treat these people as people. In other words, I mean, I'm not suggesting there's a there's a discon- I mean, they 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 the justices you talk about had certain legal principles and they employed them and adopted them and used them. But you also present the whole person. Sometimes very good and courageous. Sometimes very bad and very faulty. And I love that. I I, I really want people to read this book because. I, it is different in degree today than it was then, but there's still just people, even today, and and we lose sight of that. One of the things that's been going on on my podcast for the last year is almost everybody who comes on who talks about anything related to free speech or religion or anything, and um, we eventually get to the Kennedy case that from 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 um, the, the, the the praying coach, where where Gorsuch simply lies about what the coach had been doing. And now we know there was really no case of controversy to begin with and so on. There's an episode in your book about Koromatsu and the brief that the Solicitor General filed that really shook me because I didn't, I didn't know it. And of course it's consistent with everything I think about the court, but it gave me yet another piece of evidence to go out in the world and show I'm not putting this on you. In my view, these aren't judges doing law. They're something else. Tell the story about that brief in Korematsu. It's a great story.
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, And, uh,
0: you know, it's a a story
1: that is really in that whole shameful episode and Mm -hmm. that case that is such a stain on the Supreme Court and on the country. um, It's also really a stain on the Justice Department and on the War Department. Because what happened was that um, there had been a, uh, a, a report to, that was justifying the uh, internment of J- Japanese American citizens um, based on nothing other than the fact that their parents or other ancestors had come from Japan and, um, and it was emphasizing the uh, military necessity and all these threats that were presented on the west coast and one of the things that it really highlighted was the supposed Incidents of shore to ship signaling from the coast of radio signals and lights and see this and, and you know this shows that there are you know people and you know um, Japanese Americans on the West Coast who are coordinating with Japanese ships, and that's really emphasized in the in the report uh, to justify it. And so the cases before the Supreme Court, and there were a couple lawyers at the Justice Department who were skeptical of this. And so they had the uh, attorney general ask the FBI and the Federal Communications Commission about it. And J. Edgar Hoover for the FBI says, we have looked into it. There's absolutely nothing to it. It didn't happen. The FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, said they had extensively investigated the radio signals. It did not happen. Um, They keep very close track of that. And what's more, they said they had advised the general in charge on the west coast who had really developed the plan who was a very loathsome person general dewitt and a real racist but they had advised him of that before the decision and yet he obviously went forward with the decision and relied on it in the in the report and so these lawyers then thought it's very important to alert the supreme court um, to this and so they had drafted a footnote in the brief that um, explicitly disavowed it and talked about the fact that there were conflicting reports on it. And then the War Department got word of this. And um, John J. McCloy, who became a very eminent lawyer, sometimes called the chairman of the American establishment in the post-war world, um, and was a very senior War Department official, gets very upset and calls the Solicitor General and complains about it. And you get this classic stop the presses moment. So the solicitor general orders that they stop the presses, and he um, and and they designate a senior justice department official at the time, Herbert Wexler, as you know, Eric, a very well known and yes. revered uh, law professor associated with the neutral principles movement of the nineteen fifties, very well admired. He'd been a former Supreme Court law clerk uh, to um, work work it out, and so um, Wexler ultimately comes up with this footnote that is virtually incomprehensible i mean it's it's word salad it basically just says oh we're relying on it for statistics it doesn't say anything about conflicting reports and it basically buries the issue and wexler himself later said well i thought it was a public relations problem um but basically um what you have at its core is that the justice department and the war department are withholding critical information from the Supreme Court um, about this. And in the Solicitor General's brief, at the same time, they're citing this report over and over and over again, dozens of times. And at the oral argument in the Supreme Court, the Solicitor General, Charles Fahey, gets questions about the report and about that footnote. And he says a few times, we stand behind every line of that report. Wow! Um, And so it's really, Um, You know a kind of very uh, shameful incident and now it doesn't get the Supreme Court off the hook I just want to emphasize that because even on the record as it went to them and with the report um, it's uh, you know, it's a it's a historic terrible injustice up there with uh, Dred Scott and Plessy versus Ferguson so it doesn't you know take them off the hook that this was withheld from them but it really is um, you know just a, a a massive problem in terms of what the Justice Department and the War Department did, and there actually was an incident the year before in the curfew cases that was quite similar because in those cases, so again, this is a um, a case about a criminal conviction of a Japanese American citizen who um, had been convicted because he violated this curfew only applicable to Japanese American citizens. And the justification that the War Department had given and that the Justice Department made was it was just a matter of timing. You know, in the months after Pearl Harbor, they didn't have time to sort out who was loyal and disloyal. And again, these same Justice Department lawyers discovered that it was a senior naval intelligence official, very knowledgeable about Japan and about the Japanese American community, who had done this analysis that said there absolutely is time. We don't need this. Once again, the FBI said, you know, Hoover was very much against the incarceration. He said, we we already know who the bad guys are. We've taken care of them. Um, and but in this memo from the intelligence official, he very explicitly says, um, you know, there's no problem with timing. We know right now who's loyal and who's disloyal, and we could have procedures to implement that. And so again, these lawyers um, say one of them writes a memo to the solicitor general. Saying um, that it, we need to present this to the Supreme Court, and if we do, it risks um, uh, withholding evidence, yeah. it, uh, you know, on an important and material point. And the Solicitor General just ignores them and goes forward with it. Um, so there's this this pattern of really of kind of you know willful um, deceit. And there's the problem with the you know with the cases themselves. But also one of the points that one of these lawyers who was pushing for transparency in Korematsu unsuccessfully made um, was that we have a responsibility to do this because these are lies that the government has spread about these loyal American citizens um, with the short of ship signaling and that kind of thing. And we have a responsibility to say that these were lies and to kind of clarify it for the American people, but all of that just gets swept under the rug. And,
0: and I doubt it affected the result in any event. But still, it's it's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing act of irresponsibility by the lawyers. I think.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, was, I mean, look, the uh, you know a lawyer's duty of candor to the court and the Solicitor General's office, as you meant uh, You know, I served in the Solicitor General's office. Pri- that, that office prides itself on its duty of candor to the Supreme Court above and beyond the ordinary lawyer. They think we have this special relationship with the court. We play it straight with the court and let the court know. And I will say, you know, to, to his credit, um, Neil Cacho, when he was acting Solicitor General, uh, publicly issued a confession of error, shining a light on this and saying, you know, we as the Justice Department need to face up to our history when we've done wrong. And this is an example where we did wrong.
0: Facing up to our history. That's something we could do a lot more of, I think. Um, I want to talk about the Quirin case for a minute, but let me set the stage because for the non-lawyers in, in the room. Uh, this happened during the, relatively early in the war at a time when the war wasn't going great is my understanding. And, and, you know, we, it, it was not a sure victory by any means at the time of this case. And a bunch of Germans come over from Germany. Um, they land in Florida and Long Island. And they ditched their uniforms and they, they came here to blow up things, but they never came close to doing it. They turned themselves in. Um, and the, the important point that I want to talk about is that one of those German citizen people was an American citizen, or at least the court accepted his lawyer's statement that he was an American citizen. So what, so let's just back up what we have here. Forget the, forget the Germans. We have an American citizen who is being accused of of going over to Germany and then coming back here with an intent to blow up war facilities. They never came close to doing it. It was never a real thing that was ever going to happen. And his lawyer basically said, he's a, he's an American citizen, he gets a jury trial. And, of course, he never did take it from there.
1: <laughs> well, th- and, um, you know, this is part of a broader story. I mean, even with regard to the Germans, it's very important in terms of, Um, what happened here, because from the time they were uh, captured, FDR personally was very interested in this case and wanted to make sure that all of them would be um, uh, convicted and many of them executed as soon as possible as a very strong stand against these Nazi saboteurs. And FDR was kind of a history buff, and he's sending his attorney general letters with examples from the American Revolution, and they need to be, you know, tried in a special military trial and executed as soon as possible. And uh, and so the Justice Department and the War Department well, can. convene...
0: This- hold a hold thought right there. He wants them executed even though nothing was blown up, nothing was hurt, nothing was damaged, and they basically, two of them turned the other ones in, and they, and they all came in. The death right. penalty for that in and of itself is kind of a strange thing, but go ahead. Well,
1: and the, the you know, the two of them who turned themselves in, that wasn't really known for a long time. Yeah. Um, at the time, J. Edgar Hoover announced it and announced it as this sort of masterstroke of, you know, <laughs> that the FBI had unraveled this and, you know, yeah. captured them. And so the public at the time, uh, you know, didn't know that it was because a couple of them, you know, very quickly. Um, w- one of them in particular with the agreement of the other, uh, you know, went to the FBI and confessed everything. Um,
0: and that's I think how, he was turned away once. Wasn't wasn't he turned away once and had to go back or someone oh, yeah. made a phone oh, yeah. call? Okay. <laughs> a, a, a couple times.
1: He yeah. kept trying to reach people in the government right. <laughs> to tell them about this plot. And they're like, okay, this is a crazy call or, you know, and they're basically and like then, he's, he's, and then he's put to them. death.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But,
1: uh, and, uh, But uh, and so there's this special military commission that is convened um, to try them. And of course, there's a post-Civil War precedent that says when the civilian courts are open and operating, um, you know, they should
0: generally be used. And uh, for Americans, for American citizens specifically in the Milligan case.
1: Well, it was right. It was in in, it was in that context. Yes, absolutely. Um, And uh, so but. And so the lawyers for the uh, saboteurs, um, you know, they had some fairly substantial legal claims, and they were actually arguing that that principle would apply in this context sure. as well, sure. with regard to them. But just to and, be clear, uh, they had
0: they had no precedent for that. The American citizen had a pre- had a had a spot on precedent for his demand for a jury trial.
1: Yes, that's true. That's true. Although. You know that citizen non-citizen issue hadn't really been presented so it wasn't I mean it was fair to Argue, you know that it that applied to them as well because it hadn't rested on the basis that well, it's just for citizens Um, and and um, so uh, So the 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 government at FDR's behest wants to have this um, you know special military trial FDR issues orders Uh, to convene it. And they want it all to go on this fast track. And the lawyers for the saboteurs are raising these objections. The lawyers were military officials appointed for this purpose. And so uh, um, the Supreme Court actually convenes this special summer sitting to kind of hear about the case, to to hear the case. And it um, hears arguments for two days. They all come back from around the country. Um, And then the next morning, they issue a very brief sort of two-sentence order where uh, they say, we reject the claims, opinion to follow, reasoning to follow, and the, it, this order takes effect immediately, forthwith. And within a week, they were all convicted and six of the eight were executed. The two who had cooperated, FDR had commuted their sentences to um, you know, very long prison sentences. And now the justices really had a huge problem because they had to justify <laughs> their decision. And they almost fell apart at this point. They had very, very bitter fighting over lots of issues, including issues that directly applied to the, um, you know, to the, to the Germans as well. What's the level of review that right. would ultimately go to the president and the procedure? Um, and they were bitterly disagreeing. And finally, you know, after three months sort of you know, battered and bloodied, they stumbled across the finish line in, with a unanimous opinion um, but almost from the day it's been issued, um, people have thought there were uh, major, massive problems with it, including the American citizen point, but not, but not limited to that by any means. Um, and the just, some of the justices themselves who participated in it later said that um, on reflection, they thought it was a very poor way to do business and they regretted it because they were well aware that they had already issued this order that allowed the killing, the execution of six people, and now they couldn't figure out why. But there, you know, <laughs> but there's terrible. one other part. <laughs> there, there, there's one other part of the story that is, you know, very important um, and kind of telling about this period, which is that when the justices gathered uh, in their conference to hear the arguments in those uh, in the two-day arguments, one of the justices said that he had been informed by the attorney general, Francis Biddle, that the president had said he didn't care what the court ruled. He wasn't gonna turn them over regardless of the court decision, and he was gonna have them executed no matter what. And uh, Chief Justice Stone just sort of weakly said, well, that would be a bad thing or something like that. But here <laughs> you have, I mean, the, 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 the impropriety of that, the impropriety of FDR taking that position, telling it to his attorney general, and the attorney general relating it to a justice, and that all being uh, before the justices. Um, You know, if it was,
0: you know, I'm sorry to interrupt, but if it was a Supreme Tribunal, that would be okay. But being a Supreme Court of Law, it shouldn't be okay. (laughs) No, absolutely.
1: That that is absolutely correct. Um, But, you know, one of the things that, that I think is fascinating about this court, and it goes back to what I was saying about, you know, Barnett and Hirabayashi at the beginning, is that it's really a tale of two courts. It's the best of courts and the worst of courts. Because on the one hand, you've got decisions like Korematsu and the anti-Japanese cases and the Quirin on the negative legacy of the court. On the other hand, you have a whole series of cases where in very self-conscious contrast to the totalitarians and the fascists and the authoritarians and the Nazis, the court recognized and protected and expanded constitutional rights. Um, and, uh, and and th- so that was also very much um, a, a part of the war. And for me, that legacy is part of the best of courts. But the interesting thing, when you look at those decisions on the one hand, and decisions like um, you know the Nazi saboteur case and the anti-Japanese cases on the other, the real difference is that when you're talking about issues like striking down a compulsory sterilization law, which they did, striking down all white Democratic primaries in the South, which they did, the Barnett Civil Liberties decision. Um, The difference is that for those um, on the positive side of the court's legacy, they didn't have to cross FDR, and they didn't have to cross them on a war-related issue. And when they did, which they would have had to do with the Nazi saboteurs, or with the um, anti-Japanese cases,
0: they were just completely unwilling to do it. So um, we have about five ten minutes left, and I want to I want to move on to a different subject briefly. Um, but I do want to say the book is the book is out today. I believe we're taping well. We're taping this on uh, Tuesday um, of this week. Yes, it'll be out th- the, the the podcast will be out Thursday or Friday. But the book is already out. So um, the, yes. the court at war, Cliff Sloan, It's a great book. Um, if you are I'm talking to my audience now. Um, if you're at all sympathetic to my view, the court is not a court. Although that's not, their, that's not Cliff's view at all. But you will get a lot of evidence for that proposition from this time period. Maybe, and maybe that's because it was World War II and some rules are off. I don't think so, but maybe. Um, but what, whatever your interest, it is a fabulous book with fabulous stories. We have only touched the surface and I want you to buy it. So if you're listening to this, the, the book is called The Court of War. Now, moving on. When I introduced you, I did not mention that you've worked in all three branches of the federal government. You worked on Iran Contra. Uh, you've, you, you, you've had an amazing career. Um, and so with that, with, with, with three different branches of government behind you, uh, and now teaching con law and, and death penalty, uh, stuff at Georgetown, I have this question for you. Are you a legal realist? And if so, yes. And if, and if, and if, and if, and if, and if yes, why? If not, why not? <laughs> All right. Well, let let me put it this way. And then, you know, we can talk about what what
1: label attaches to that. So on the one hand, I absolutely think justices are part of the times and the environment that they live in. And they're very much affected by it. And, you know, absolutely. The war years was. Um, you know, so omnipresent for these for these justices. And we could talk about many, many different ways where that was um, the, the, the case. But I think that's always true. I don't think that's just World War II. And I mean, you know, I uh, previously wrote a book about Marbury versus Madison, and that is so embedded in the politics of the early 1800s. It's really a D.C. story of kind of, you know, the, a, a lot of political intrigue and so on. So on the one hand, I absolutely think that you know justices are um, part of their times, and I think it would be um, you know simplistic uh, and incorrect to think, oh, it's just a kind of abstract situation, and uh, you know that that doesn't. It's play all text. Into it it's all. all
0: text and history. It's all it is. is text right, and history. But,
1: <laughs> but at the same time, I also think that the justices do bring their own judicial philosophies to bear. So I don't, I don't put that, I don't give zero weight to that. I mean, I think that they are also kind of processing these through their you know, own sort of jurisprudential um, frameworks. And so you know, to, to my mind, in a way it would also be unrealistic to think that doesn't enter into it at all, and that that's all sort of a smokescreen or a cover for what they really want to do.
0: So um so, so that's let me push back let me just it. Since I really was let me push back a little bit on the last point you made. What you okay. call judicial ideo- ideology and you know so Scalia and Thomas and Kavanaugh and Barrett and Gorsuch self identify as originalists and they bring that kind of historical originalist perspective as part of their ideology. Whereas um, uh, maybe Breyer and Brennan and Marshall and Douglas and others would have a more um, uh, pluralistic view of decision making, you know uh, and and think maybe maybe facts are more important than the letter of the law and so on and so forth, whatever it is. But my problem is with your description is they don't decide cases according to their ideologies. If they decided cases according to their their judicial ideologies as opposed to their preferences, then affirmative action would still be constitutional. The First Amendment would be a much less, uh, rigorous type of impediment to government action. Um, you know, a lot of things would change. So I, when you say they have Jewish ideologies, I say they, that, that is true, but they're tied to a political, not a partisan, but a political agenda that they have. And if you and I were on the Supreme Court, we'd do the same thing. If we had unreviewable power for life, are we going to let pre-existing theoretical commitments get in the way of something that we really believed in, I don't think I don't think we would. I don't think anybody would. So I, I'm just not sure what you mean by judicial ideology, because Scalia voted to strike down over 140 laws, and virtually none of them were persuasively struck down because he was an originalist, on originalist grounds. Thomas, the same thing. Um, Ginsburg and Marshall, two American heroes, in my book. most important civil rights litigator ever? Maybe. The most important litigator for women's rights ever? Maybe. Um, They get to the court and they vote 99% liberal 99% of the time. So I'm not sure what you mean by ideology. So my last question to you is, what do you mean by judicial ideology?
1: (laughs) Well, by jurisprudential uh, approach, and again, I'm not saying That it's some sort of pure, uh, you know, kind of abstract (laughs) inquiry, and that determines it. You know, I think these are all elements um, in it. But I I do think that, um, you know, I I do think that the judges and justices um, do kind of take – you know their um, their approach seriously. Listen, I agree with many of your critiques, and I'm not. Uh, you know, and and that's all sort of fair game. But I but I no, I mean I do I, I agree with many of the critiques about um, you know the kind of inconsistency in the approach. I'll tell you my own view on originalism is that um, you know the. Uh, that's not what John Marshall and the people who developed the Constitution <laughs> thought. You know, right. he said it's, it's so, so I think it's, you know, that's a, to me. And I know, you know, many originalists will disagree with this. But, um, you know, that's a kind of fundamental contradiction because he, he talked about how it's a document that's intended to endure for ages. And I think some of the things going on now, you know, such as the approach in you know, brew in the gun case that, well, you have to find something the government was doing in the 19th century. Nothing could be more antithetical to John Marshall. So I think a true originalist view has a very dynamic view of what the government can do. That's sort of my own personal view. But again, I will say that I do think that, um, you know, that, that, that there is some role for the justice's own frameworks. I mean, you know, we were talking about Justice Stevens, and he would take very seriously judging and, you know, kind of, his his approach and his understanding of the Constitution, and I don't think that was you know just a kind of smokescreen to to reach a predetermined result. Now again, you know they're 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 part of their times and they're part of their instincts, um, you know. And 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 we could talk about that a lot with Justice Stevens as well as with others, and you know to some extent with regard um, to their own experiences. But again, I wouldn't you know kind of place zero weight. And the justices' own conception of what their um, judicial framework
0: is. It's, it's interesting. I mean, Stevens, Souter, White, Blackman, maybe to a lesser degree, um, O'Connor for sure. Um, These are all justices with relatively moderate political ideologies. So you know, O'Connor and and uh, O'Connor certainly to the right a little bit, but not. Not to, as much to the right as most of the conservative justices, um, and and Stevens to the left a little bit, but not as much to the left as the most liberal justices. So it just strikes me, it's again, it's a one-to-one ratio that they're, they're moderate judges who who believe that facts on the ground matter, that law matters, so they decide cases that way. To Ginsburg and Marshall, it was more important, the civil rights part of it was more important. To Scalia. Thomas at all their GOP platform of 20, of 1992, I think is most important. Um, but, but it's, but it's all, you know, it just comes back into their, they are people with pre-existing ideologies that cut across many different areas. But as I think, you know, I think they're given a job. No human being should have. Here's unreview. If you have five votes, here's unreviewable power for life. And that's, that's nuts. Your book, I think really brings into focus that notion, that these are people who started the court after having – and in the case of these justices, you write about, amazing public lives. Not true anymore. Roberts did not have an amazing public life before getting on the court, neither did Gorsuch or any of them. But um uh, that's different. The judges you write about had real lives, political lives before the court. And your book, I think – it is a specific period of time, World War II. But a lot of the issues we face today, I think – come out of that time period and, and and kind of how the justices related to each other and to the president and to the Congress. So congratulations on writing a fantastic book. Um, I, I, it's really – I'll just say this. It, it, this will insult some people, but it's my favorite book of the year. So people should read it and congratulations and um, I hope you get it out there um, and thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you, Eric. I really appreciate it. Thanks so
0: much. Thanks, Cliff. All right, everybody. The book is The Court at War. See you next time.